so it's really good to uh, be here this morning and be able to continue on the series uh, on Luke that we've been looking at. So thank you, Steve, for the opportunity to share this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Dave Monday. Uh, I've been part of the church here for 15 years. So I came here as a student in 2000 uh, and have never managed to leave. Uh, so um, I'm married to Gordy, who's just taken the kids out, and you would probably recognize her from worship leading, and our two kids, Dylan and Phoebe, uh, six and four. And if you don't know the kids, one quick thing to tell you uh, about the kids is Gordy recently asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, to which Dylan responded without a moment's pause, he wanted to be a paleontologist. Um, so he has an idea that he'll be a wild dinosaur fossil hunter when he grows up. Uh, and Phoebe wants to be a butterfly. So, um, so that's all you need to know about the kids. For me and Gord's, we've got no idea what we want to be when we grow up, of course. Um, so I'm a nurse. I work at the John Radcliffe Hospital. I lead the bowel cancer screening program there, and we cover the Oxfordshire uh, area. And just to warn you, I've, got, I've prepared a PowerPoint this morning, um, and as Lois is putting it, to, putting it onto the computer, she said, oh, is it this one called bowel scope? And I was like, no, that's a work one, and there'll be pictures of uh, ulcerated rectums. Uh, <laughs> and inflamed diverticular disease and colonic polyps. You don't want to go there. So um, I think we're all right, and we've kept that out of this presentation, but we'll let you know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so uh, the, the title I was given for this morning when I was first asked to share was about death and taxes, because death and taxes are two questions that Jesus asked, is asked in the passage we're going to look at. The questions are about death and taxes, but actually it's all about authority, and as we unpick that, hopefully that will become apparent. Um, so let's just think for a moment before we dive in, just as to what's been happening, uh, what's been happening uh, so far um, in, 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 in the story of Luke. So the passage we're going to look at in, in Luke 20 is located right at the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, we're really in the final we're in, we're in the Passion Week, so the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple has happened, um, and we have had Palm Sunday, and we're really two or three, four days away from Good Friday. So we're right at the end of Jesus' uh, ministry. So Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and through his actions and his preaching, is increasingly in opposition to the Jewish authorities. And things are at a point now where it isn't just a little theological disagreement uh, about something over here or a trivial matter of textual interpretation over there, but rather there are, he's fundamentally disagreeing with them over a whole number of things. And he, what he's been saying to them, as we looked at the parable of the tenants last week, you haven't just, he's saying to the Jewish authorities, you haven't just missed the point of what's going on or missed God's plans for Israel You've actively rebelled against God and rejected and even murdered his prophets and the ones that he has uh, sent you. So they uh, want his kingdom claims, his messianic claims, his movement to go away, and they're prepared to stop at nothing to do so. Uh, he, Jesus here is a real and present threat to the Jewish leader's authority. And it's into that context that our passage this morning is set, and as we look at uh, authority in Jesus this morning. Before we, before we go on into the passage itself as well, I think it would be helpful just to unpack a little bit about authority generally, 
uh, and how it works, and a little bit about where authority sits within the biblical story. So uh, I'll just spend a few minutes doing this, and then we'll get on to read the passage and make a few reflections from it as we go. So first of all, if you think about the creation narrative, we see that God is the one who has authority, and we've sung about this in in one of the songs this morning. God speaks, and the world comes into being. God has authority. Authority is given to Adam. It's delegated to him. He names the animals. And him and Eve uh, have delegated authority from God and they're to tend the garden and to rule over it and to subdue it. So God gives authority to Adam and Eve. And there is harmony in how that works. Authority is exercised and authority is accepted. And it's good. As we read about through all the creation narrative, uh, what God creates is good. The authority that is there is good. In the fall, of course, what we see is that the serpent comes and tricks Adam and Eve uh, to usurp the authority that God has. They eat the fruit because they want to become like God. They want to usurp that authority. Authority then becomes something to be grasped at or clung onto or held onto at all costs. And it has lost that inherently the, that, that altogether good nature. It's something that becomes taken when it's no longer ours. Authority also then becomes something to be feared. We see Adam and Eve hiding from God uh, after they've eaten the fruit that they weren't supposed to. And then within the redemptive part of the biblical story, we see that God's authority is still delegated and it rests with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, etc., We see Moses going to speak to Pharaoh with God's authority, let my people go. We also uh, start to see, we see authority within human structures. So Pharaoh himself has authority and he uh, inflicts slavery on, uh, on, on the people of Israel before the Exodus account. We start to see Uh, So we see that authority, but not wielded in a good way. We also see that within the children of Israel, the the people of Israel themselves, where they ask for a king. They want a king like uh, the other nations around them. Uh, And they say to Samuel, will you give us, we want a king. And Samuel warns them, and this is what he says in 1 Samuel 8. He says, this is what the king who you're asking for, who will reign over you, will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. So we see delegated authority, but even within the people of Israel, it's not uh, conducted in the way that authority should be or not handled in the way that it should be. We also see in Habakkuk, God choosing to put his authority in the book of Habakkuk, an account of God choosing to put his authority in the Babylonians, who are a godless pagan uh, um, people group, to bring judgment, to bring his authority to judge the people of Israel who have turned their back on God. And then within the, within the life of Jesus, we, he is clear that he gets his authority from God, not man. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above, he says, when he's arrested just before his crucifixion. He's clearly submitted to the Father's authority. Not your will, but mine be done, he says in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of God's authority, of course, has then been given to him. 
and then he delegated to us and we're sent out in the Great Commission. He also calls his followers to exercise authority by not lording it over people, as the Gentiles do. We read about in Mark chapter 10, but in being a coming like a servant. And then there's lots in the, uh, in the, in the epistles about authority and how we respond to that as well. We see in the early church Peter writing about slaves submitting to masters and for the church to, the church to submit to every authority, authority instituted among men. Paul writes about submitting to kings and authorities and praying for them in 1 Timothy 2. And also then in Romans 13, Paul writes, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Therefore, he says, it is necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. And clearly there's lots also within the New Testament writings about authority within the church and how church elders and church leaders exercise delegated authority and how people should submit to that. So authority continues through the biblical story. And when we get then to the consummation of God's kingdom coming in its fullness, we know that Jesus will come with authority in his second coming to judge the living and the dead. God's authority is no longer usurped, but submitted to by all. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Authority becomes enacted then in perfect ways, but it still exists. So those are just a few thoughts and maybe summaries, reflections on authority in the biblical story. And what I want to do, if I can, is hold those thoughts together with the context of the passage itself that I just outlined to you. And we'll just try and read through uh, the passage we have this morning and just make some reflections on that as we go. So the first part we'll look at is really thinking about uh, what Jesus has to say about earthly authority. So from Luke 20, 20 to 26. So, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarii whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. So as I've already mentioned, Jesus was leading something of a revolutionary movement which was threatening the powers of the day and was on collision course, whether, with, whether it be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, or indeed the Roman power, the hostile power that had invaded some years before and that ruled Jerusalem and the surrounding area at that time. So the question Jesus is asked about paying tax to Rome is designed to trick him, designed to put him in a dilemma. If he says no don't pay your taxes to Caesar, don't pay your taxes to Rome. He runs the risk of being handed over, to the Jewish authorities handing him over to the Roman powers, uh, potentially for crucifixion, because he is not paying the tribute, paying the tax required. Of course, if he just says, yes, we should always pay our tax and our homage to Caesar, then he no longer has the revolutionary or messianic credibility that he had been building. Uh, he would, in effect, be saying, 
God's Messiah is not really going to rid Israel of foreign rule or return Israel from exile. Things aren't really going to change. Let's just opt for this quiet life under, under Roman rule. There's nothing more than that to hope for. But Jesus, quite brilliantly, doesn't fall into either trap by saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So what do we, what do we take from that in terms of our picture of earthly uh, what do we take from that passage in terms of our application? Well, some have tried to build a complex theology about church and state from this kind of passage, and it probably tells us something about that. Um, but I think it gives us a bit of a useful insight into how authority works. So Jesus endorses submission to the authority of the state, in this case the Roman state, but within the context of God's authority. He is not saying everything is fine with Roman power and rule and everything is perfect in the Roman Empire but far from it but he is saying that we should submit to that authority that the, that the people there should pay the tax and I've already highlighted how through the biblical whole biblical story there's lots of accounts of where authority is exercised but in imperfect ways yet there seems to be here a call to uh, submit to it nonetheless Uh, If we just move on to the next slide, I don't know what you think of when we think about earthly uh, authority and people that hold authority and power, a picture maybe of of the the rule of law and a court judge who, as he slams the hammer down with the verdict in a court case, it's kind of a final uh, judgment and authority is being exercised. Uh, Maybe a picture of a boss. Most of us have bosses in the things we do, whether they're a teacher, a university professor, uh, a boss in our places of work, etc. My boss doesn't look anything like that. Uh, my boss is a matron. That's her job title, which always makes people laugh. Um, she, doesn't, she doesn't look anything like a matron in the carry-on films, uh, I'm pleased to say. Um, but uh, we, all, we all live within, uh, in a world where there are earthly authority structures. Let me give an example from my work where I've had to submit to authority, even though I've perceived it to be imperfect, but I've needed to submit nonetheless. So I, uh, in, in leading the screening program, as I do uh, for Oxfordshire, uh, screening for bowel cancer, we were expanding uh, the service that we were offering and, and wanted to screen a greater number of patients. A greater number of people were being invited for screening, going down to a younger kind of age range than we had been before. So one of the things as the lead, I was project managing getting that new screening service set up whilst continuing to lead the current bit that was already running. And I had a very clear project plan over kind of 18 months about how we were going to get everything ready and get everything set up to start this new screening program, which involves seeing about 5,000 patients a year. The income we would get from that, so we're being paid to do that uh, from the NHS commissioners, is about one and a half million pounds. It's quite a big thing to sort out. Um, And one of the key things I had to sort out was when I would recruit two new nurses to join my team so that I could train them and get them ready and get them prepared and uh, kind of fully inducted and on the course they needed to be on, etc., to be ready to see this new wave of patients that was coming our way. So we had someone lined up to start on our team four months before the before the go-live date for the new screening program to give them time to get on the course, to get trained, etc. Um, so I'd, I'd interviewed and appointed this person. Two weeks before they were due to start... My manager came to me and said, oh, you know Sue, who's starting within two weeks? And I said, yeah, yeah, I know Sue. She's starting with us in two weeks. And she said, oh, well, she's no longer going to start with you in two weeks' time. She's going to come and work for me in my team for two months. 
uh, and then she will come and work with you just for the she just needs to have her training period over two months with you ready to start this new screening program so you're going to need to train her and get her ready for what she'll need to do in two months not four months and I said, well, I don't think I can do that. I think it's going to take four months. That's why we put it in the project. And she said, no, no, you're going to have to do it in two months. So I said, no, it's going to take four months. And she said, no, no, it's going to be two. Um, so I said, okay. And I went away and thought about it for a little bit. And I went back to her and said, are you really? And we kind of tried to negotiate, could we say three months? Maybe, and hoping for three and a half. It was clear it was going to be two months. So I had, a, I, had a, I had an option at that point. I felt that I couldn't do a good job at training this person in two months, although I could do some training in that time period. Uh, so I had an option. I could either submit to what she was asking me to do and say, train her in two months because I need to do something else uh, in my team. Or I could go over my manager's head or behind her back, as she would have perceived it, and spoken to our kind of regulator and our quality assurance inspector team and said, you know, reported her for kind of some kind of, uh, I don't know what I would have said, some kind of uh, negligence or say, you know, or, or essentially saying she's doing something I don't like. Um, but I, I felt quite clearly that although I disagreed with her about this training period and I didn't think it was the right uh, length of time and I didn't like the way that that had been given to me and told of me, told to me, just before you're about to get someone to start in post, I needed to submit to her authority and do the best of training this person in that two-month period. So that's what I did, and, uh, and it more or less worked out. It was, a bit, uh, it was a frantic couple of months to get this new staff member up and trained and ready, but we just about managed it. Um, and, but I felt, I felt clear that I needed to submit to her authority and not uh, just do what I wanted to do, um, even though it was imperfect. And I also had to recognize that resistance to authority sometimes is more about our independent and rebellious nature than it is about standing up for a principle of something, which is maybe how I felt to start with. I want to stand up for the principle of having this person in and trained for four months. Actually, what I needed to do was, uh, was, was submit to her and uh, be... Uh, kind of willing to do so. Claire, last week in her preaching, used the phrase about used a phrase I thought was quite helpful about self-directed, independent action, and that's something that we are all veer towards uh, instead of submitting to authority. So that's maybe an example of a place time when I've had to submit to what I felt was imperfect authority, but authority nonetheless. Now, just to go on a little bit before we look at the next passage, we need to understand the Roman coins that were used, the denarii that Jesus refers to here in this passage, uh, was blasphemous to the Jewish people. It had a graven image on it, which was against the kind of Jewish law. And the wording, the inscription on the coin, would have said something about Caesar Augustus claims to claim to be the son of God. So it was, a, it was actually a blasphemous thing to, to, to see, to have, and it was offensive to the Jewish people. I think there's an edge to what Jesus says. To say, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, is, is, saying he get, is saying, sorry, he'll get back what he deserves. He can make blasphemous coins if he wants. But if he does, he'll get what's coming to him, which is God's judgment. And there's times that our submission to imperfect authority doesn't involve just taking our heads off and thinking, oh, yeah, that's all perfect. We can understand it's imperfect, but sometimes our submission can have the element that says, yes, I'm submitting, but I'm not 
uh, part of this stance or action or the nature of what's going on. I will submit to earthly authority, uh, but within the context of God's authority being bigger and greater than that, I will give Caesar my pounds, but I'm not giving Caesar my praise. My praise is going to God. And so in the example of the story I gave you, I made it clear to my boss, I said, if this all falls apart because we haven't got the staff we need, if we can't enact this new screening program because people aren't trained and ready, that's falling at your door, not mine. Because you're the, and, I've, and, I, and, I, and she understood that and, and, and accepted, accepted that. And I think there's a times when our submission is, yes, we submit, but we also need to understand that we're not, uh, we're not part of everything that's going on that's represented by an imperfect uh, structure of authority like the example I've given. So, and sometimes, of course, we have to not submit to earthly authority. If, so if I had found in this project that my boss had been embezzling all the income, had been embezzling the £1.5 million, I couldn't, and then in finding out, she said to me, oh, don't tell anyone, I'll give you a payoff and don't tell anyone about it. Clearly, I couldn't then submit to her authority. I would clearly have to do something about that. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that my boss was doing that. I mean, she's a good person. <laughs> um, but uh, there are times, and I'm not going to go on to kind of civil disobedience and anything to do with that, but there are times when actually we can't submit to authority, but we need to be clear when those times are or aren't. So I've highlighted the story with my boss, but uh, let me ask you a question. Um, what earthly authority is God asking us to submit to? Because for all of us, and I highlighted our maybe slightly rebellious kind of nature or instinct sometimes, for all of us, there's a pressure point somewhere. Is there a boss we don't want to submit to? Is there a parent we don't want to submit to? Is there a church elder, a community group leader, a teacher, a university professor, uh, the council, a tax inspector, the police? Someone, uh, the police with their speed gun trying to catch you. I mean, there's someone that you don't want to submit to their authority in, unless, well, unless you've got this sorted, which if you have, that's great. You can maybe finish off the sermon for me. Uh, so for all of us, there is some earthly authority which may well be imperfect, which almost probably by definition is imperfect, that God wants us to be submitting to. Uh, and my challenge to you is to think, what is that? and with the Spirit's help to resolve to submit. Let's carry on in the passage and read the next chunk. So uh, Luke 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the, the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers... The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions.
So with the first set-up question having failed to trap Jesus, the question about tax, they have another go. And of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually ideological enemies uh, of each other, but happy to team up with each other to try and catch Jesus out. A little bit maybe like the Tories and the Labour Party together campaigning on the no vote for the Scottish uh, referendum and, uh, you know, at each other's throats. Then they stop, campaign together for that, and then as soon as the referendum's over, they uh, are at each other's throats again. Uh, but anyway, they're teaming together, trying to catch Jesus out again. This was uh, designed to undermine his authority, this question, not so much to set him up against Rome or with Rome, but to make a key belief sound ridiculous. You don't really believe in resurrection, do you, Jesus? You don't re- it's a bit, a bit far-fetched. We can believe in a few things. I don't mind servant leadership. That's kind of painful, but okay. But resurrection? bit weird, isn't it? Jesus, do you really believe that? I remember the first day in a full-time job after spending a year studying at Bible College, uh, one of my, and it's a new team member, in hearing what I've been doing, said to me, oh, that must be really interesting for you. Do you know what? I've got a sister who calls herself a born-again Christian. And I said, oh, right, that's interesting. Uh, I said, oh, she's, she's a bit of a fundamentalist. She's a bit weird. I'm sure you're not weird, are you, Dave? And I said, no, 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 I'm not weird. I'm not weird. Because, uh, you know, first day, you're trying to make a bit of impression. And then she says to me, yeah, she's really weird. She tithes her money. She gives 10% of all her money to her church. So, all right, interesting. And she's read all of the Bible. Uh, and I said, okay, interesting. She said, you don't believe in tithing, do you? You don't read the Bible, do you? And it's that moment, isn't it, where it's like, well, what can you say? You know, I can't, I can't say no. So I said, well, Fran, as it happens... I do tithe my money. She said, you, oh, you don't believe it. You don't tithe. And I said, I do. I honestly do. And, she, and I said, and what's more, I have read all of the Bible. So, um, but I just remember that look on her face of, you don't really believe this, do you? And this is kind of the, they're trying to ridicule Jesus a bit and say, you don't really believe in this res- resurrection lark, do you? Um, the conundrum he's then supposed to get stuck in here is either to side with the Sadducees who denied there was a resurrection and therefore aligning himself with them, who were kind of the rich aristocrats of the day. And if I'm honest, maybe I would suggest they, don't, they didn't really want or need a Messiah figure like him. He was being a bit too radical. He was upsetting things too much and, wanted too, and, was, and was saying that things needed to change far more than they would be comfortable with. So if he did side with them, all of his preaching and ministry for the last three years would all be something of a sham. Of course, if he does state his belief in resurrection, then he's supposed to, the idea is that it makes him sound ridiculous. I mean, how on earth does it work, Jesus? I mean, seven brothers, all dead, one wife, who's married to who? I mean, you know, how does it all work? And of course, in that story, a made-up story, if you were the seventh brother, I mean, I'm the youngest of three boys, so I've got two older brothers, if I was the youngest of seven, and then all six, the first one marries this, marries this woman, you meet her, seems all right, marries her, he dies, okay. Uh, second brother marries her, she, he dies, third brother, four, etc. If you're the seventh, and you hear the news that brother number six has just died, and you're following the law of Moses means you've got to go and marry her, you'd be pretty nervous, wouldn't you? I mean, there's something dodgy going on. You would, I would be praying, Lord, I'm happy to follow your law, but please, is there another way? 
I'm worried about what might happen to me. And sadly, he does have to marry her, and he also dies. So whether something suspicious was going on or not, we'll never know. I guess it's a made-up story. Um, But how does he respond? Well, he simply blows their question out of the water. He outlines why their question is ridiculous, not his belief. Jesus is making it clear that in asking their question in the way that they have, they fail to understand a few important things. They fail to understand that whilst we will have a bodily resurrection, and we will have a bodily resurrection, our bodies will be different to our current ones. That there will be no need to protect the family line, the family name, the family land, the family inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. Hence the thing about not being given in marriage. That's what Jesus is referring to there. Because the, the, the law would have said it was to protect the land and the family name that you had to marry your uh, dead brother's wife. Uh, and that's, that's why that law was given. It, they failed to understand that existence will be different uh, in the new heavens and the, in the new earth. Failed to understand that we'll be immortal. Hence Jesus says like angels. But not meaning we will become like angels. That's not what Jesus means, but just, you know, we'll be immortal. And by the way, people today often accept the existence of some kind of afterlife, or at least a belief that death can't quite be the end. And one of my work colleagues uh, said to me recently, she said, oh yeah, when I die, I'm going to become a tree. So I said, all right, that's interesting. Uh, tell me more about that. Uh, you know, that, that key kind of, I'm sure, I don't know how many times Steve has had to say that key pastoral phrase. Oh, right, tell me more about that. So I, I assume that's what I'll be saying to my children when they're teenagers, when they kind of have got great ideas about what they want to do. When Dylan launches his paleontologist career, well, tell me more about your, your GCSE options, Dylan. So that kind of like question of kind of tell me more, but I'm a bit skeptical. So anyway, so I said to her, I said, well, tell me more about that. She said, well, when I die, I'll be cremated and I will have my ashes mixed with, I think it was going to be an acorn, uh, planted in the ground, then a sapling grows and the oak tree grows, and I will be in that tree and I will live as that tree and I'll be present in the world as a tree. And in a slightly unsympathetic moment, I said, well, that's fine, Ange, but what happens when that tree gets chopped down and sold as firewood? Um, and then I said, actually, sorry, that's a bit hard. And I, thought, and I, had, to rep- I had to say sorry. So I thought that's a slightly harsh, maybe like ridiculing way of talking to her about her belief in the afterlife. So actually, I said, no, no, sorry, that's, um, that's not fair. And she said, oh, no, don't worry, because the, the, the area where I'd be planted is, like, is, is safe. Like, you're not allowed to cut, you know, it's, it's kind of a protected area. You can't cut the trees down. So don't worry. That, I, I'd thought about that, but don't worry. So anyway, so I'd, I'd apologize for being slightly glib about her belief. But I said, you know what, I too believe that death isn't the end. I don't believe I'm going to be a tree, but I believe death is not going to be the end. But it does good for us to know actually what we do believe about uh, life after death, whether um, about the new heavens and new earth, not necessarily just or not floating around on clouds playing harps. Um, I never really liked harps that much uh, myself. But um, this bit of the story, to get back to the story itself, hinges on what? what does Jesus, where does Jesus' authority come from? to answer the question as he does and to avoid the trap that's being set up for him. Well, it's from his interpretation of the Bible. It is from Scripture. It's from the authority of the Bible. That's where his authority comes to get out of this trap that's being laid for him. So he says, uh, and what Jesus is saying in the account of Moses uh, and the burning bush, that God is the God, so this God saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and 
Jacob. And Jesus' point here is that the patriarchs who had died were in some way still alive to God. The the relationship that God is referring to when he speaks to Moses is a present one, not a past one. And I'm assured if you look at the Hebrew and you look at the tenses there, then that is what's going on. That it's about I am the God, not I was their God. So so he is using the scripture and the authority of scripture to uh, speak with authority. Now, we're not going to get stuck in how Jesus uses Old Testament passages in his ministry because it's actually quite a complicated uh, kind of interpretation or biblical interpretation issue to think all that through. Um, But instead, it's helpful for us to realize that Jesus got such a stunned response of no one dared ask him any any more questions because his authority came from the Bible. His understanding of the Bible was... Uh, authoritative and was powerful. So thinking a bit about what that means for us today, I think we need to be those people who believe in the authority of scripture. I don't think that's a controversial statement to make. We all know 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But it is a verse that's much easier to quote than it is to obey or live out, isn't it? I think it's easier to say than it is to live out. So for all of us, the challenge is to submit to God's authority revealed to us in the Bible. And for some of us, to do that, I think it will mean spending time studying and thinking and praying about what the Bible says. For some, that means re-instigating a quiet time daily, which has got a bit lost in the busyness of life. For others, that doesn't mean quiet time. It means setting aside an evening a week, evening a month to study just read the Bible and really grapple with some text for an hour or two or three. For some people, I would suggest that it would mean signing up to do a course of study at King's School of Theology. And you can do that part-time over up to three years. You can even just go on a taster study break weekend and see what that's like. But it's about giving ourselves to the study and to the um, understanding of the Bible uh, and to be to be submitting to its authority. I can testify that the year I spent studying at what was then called King's Bible College was one of the most formative years of my life as I grappled with questions about faith, questions about the Bible, and as my life became increasingly submitted to the authority of Scripture. Grappling with questions about faith, God, the Bible, culture, lifestyle, worship, mission, I found very liberating. And... Uh, I would suggest that we would do well to recommit ourselves to to study and to understand the authority of of the Bible. For others, though, it's less about understanding more, and it's about obeying more. For some people, you don't need more revelation about what's in the Bible or understand better what it's saying to us. You just need to do what it says. So let me pose a couple of questions. What message of scripture do you need to be submitting to, recognizing it as God's authoritative word? And secondly, do you need to give yourself to study of God's word more so that you can more fully uh, submit to the authority of God that's in the word? Jesus clearly understood what scripture meant. He was also clearly submitted to uh, the, uh, the, the authority of what he had in his day, the Old Testament. 
Final point, and then we'll uh, wrap up. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, so he gets to ask his question now, how is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Okay, so what does this tell us about Jesus and authority? Well, Jewish expectation of the day was that the Messiah would be of the line of David. He wouldn't necessarily be divine, but he would be of the line of David, a descendant of him. And Jesus was that, i.e. David's son, as it's referred to in this passage. So David was seen as the greatest king of Israel, one who God's spirit rested with. The Messiah then, would be another great king in the mold of David, kick out the Roman rulers, rebuild the temple, return God's people from exile. But they would be David's son, like David, but lesser than David. The Messiah's authority, therefore, would come from his earthly status and who his earthly father was. That was the expectation of the day. What Jesus is getting at here is to say no. The Messiah will be greater than David. In fact, so much greater than David that David himself will call him Lord. Why? Because the Messiah will share God's throne, not just David's throne. The Messiah himself is divine. The the Messiah is God, God himself. He is not lesser than David. He is David's Lord. Jesus is therefore saying, I am the Messiah, and my authority to do what I've been doing, to, say, to be saying what I've been saying, to be challenging what I've been challenging, comes from my heavenly Father. It doesn't come from my earthly Father. The passage goes on, then, to criticize the teachers of the law for being pompous and proud, uh, arrogant, and evil in many ways. And then highlights how much more the widow has given than the rich man. So why have these stories immediately after the part about David uh, and the Messiah? Well, I want to suggest this to you. It's because the teachers of the law depended on their earthly status for their identity. They depended on their earthly status for their authority. They were not dependent on who their heavenly father was. The widow, however, has understood something about having her identity and her status wrapped up in who God is. You see, she had no earthly authority and no earthly status to hold on to, to make her feel like she had authority. There was nothing for her. So she had no choice but to understand that 
her, all her authority, all her belonging, all her identity was caught up in who God was, God as her father. The widow understood uh, that then, if that is true, then nothing else matters. If God really is your heavenly father, if that really is where your belonging and security and authority lies, you can give him everything and you can trust him. In fact, why wouldn't you give him everything? It's no longer about having authority or legitimacy because of earthly status, that's what Jesus is saying, but about understanding and acknowledging and, of course, then submitting to who your heavenly father is. The scale that has been used, one in the mold of David, one lesser than David, has been blown out of the water, blown out by all proportion to say, no, no, it's about God himself and about him and he being our father. Now, I have some positional authority in my role in the NHS. Um, We're quite a hierarchical organization, the NHS, which is okay to a point, I suppose. I line manage eight people, um, and there's times where I have to pull rank, is the way it's referred to. And by pulling rank, what you're doing is you're saying to someone, come on, I'm your boss, and you need to stop doing this or start doing that. So, you know, you need to start getting to work on time. So I had a, uh, an administrator in our team who's left the team now, actually. In, not, not because of this, but I didn't sack her. But um, she was quite often late. So I had to pull rank a few times and say, look, come on, we expect you to be in work on time. It's a good reason why, you know, and you, and you have to pull rank a little bit. At the moment, oddly, I've got two administrators, and I have to tell them to not get to work early, which is slightly odd, because if they come to work, and they can't, because they're not allowed to go early, because we're not that flexible, of course, because this is the NHS with the public sector, so we can't be flexible. So they can't go early, but if they arrive early, they've done too many hours. If they've done too many hours and that gets logged on the computer system, we have to start paying them overtime, but there's no money to pay them overtime. So it causes me a headache if they get to work early. So I say get to, if you get to work early, we're not paying, you know, anyway, it's complicated. So occasionally I have to pull rank. That's my point, not about overtime payments in the NHS. I have to pull rank sometimes and say, uh, I'm your boss, do this. However, if I primarily understand that my authority comes from that, from my status as their manager, and, not, and I fail to understand that it comes from who my heavenly father is and being God's uh, kingdom agent where I work, then yes, I'll pull rank because that's what I can do. But I won't have the courage to exercise authority and power that I have in the way that Jesus instructs us to by saying, don't lord it over people as the Gentiles do, but be a servant. I will exercise my authority imperfectly if I don't understand that my authority comes from my Heavenly Father, and if I only understand that it comes, although it does come, but it only comes from the status I have within my employee organization. Just to illustrate that point a bit further, in two weeks' time I've been asked to attend a meeting at work. A slightly odd meeting. The reason I've been invited is because I know something, I know a little bit, a reasonable amount, about how home enemas work. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had an enema. I'm afraid this is the problem if you have a bowel nurse preaching. There's, there's got to be a bowel illustration in there somewhere. So, but an enema that we use in the hospital was about the size of a pint glass with kind of like a baby feeding bottle like, top bit to it, and it gets inserted. And I won't go into that bit of detail, but that's what you use. Now, uh, in the screening program, there's been this practice, uh, this evolution in practice, this kind of practice innovation, that's the phrase, where we now send an enema to someone at home. 
So what you do is, it's prior to their appointment to come up, and some of you are looking a bit nervous. And by the way, if you're 55 now or above, this could be coming to your letterbox. But anyway, I can talk to you about that later. Um, uh, but, but what happens is, it's been redesigned so that the enema now fits through a letterbox, because you can't, you can't get a pint glass through a letterbox. The enema in, its, in a car pocket fits through someone's letterbox, so it can come in the post, uh, through the letterbox, and, the, and an hour before your test, you give yourself the enema at home, you pop to the loo, you hop in your car, you drive to the hospital, and you come and see me. Isn't that wonderful? Now, I've been invited to this meeting because I know quite a lot about this home enema, because our patients have been using it. I've not used it personally, uh, but our patients have been using it, so I know how well it works or how well it's, in, it's enjoyed, almost said, how well it's, how well it's liked by patients. So, uh, now, so, I told you about my children's career ambitions right at the beginning. Of course, someone in an office in London somewhere wanted to be a butterfly, uh, when they were four, but when they're 34, found themselves being the person who redesigned an enema to fit it through a letterbox. So they went wrong somewhere, didn't they, in their career, in their career path planning. But the reason I've been invited to this meeting is because I know how, the, how, well, how effective it is and what patients' kind of feedback is about it. Now, at this meeting, the reason for saying this, not just to give you crude bow jokes, the reason for telling you that is that at this meeting, my boss will be there, who's two grades higher than me, the operational services manager, her colleague, who's also two grades higher than me, are the clinical director for our service, who's four grades higher than me. The clinical director for our division, who's the clinical director's boss, who's kind of an internationally renowned expert in advanced endoscopic therapy and research and a variety of things. Then the, the divisional manager, who oversees an income of £250 million, and then the the uh, chief operating officer, I think his name is, who basically oversees all the clinical services for the organization that employs 10,000 people. And then I'll be there as well, waving my home enema. <laughs> but the reason, I, the reason I tell you that story is because if I go there, understanding my authority comes from how well I understand the home enema kit works, I might have something to contribute in the meeting. But probably I'll sit there rocking, uh, slightly intimidated by the senior status of the others there and won't contribute and won't be engaged. If I go to that meeting with understanding that I have authority from the father because he has placed me in my job. He has placed me as his uh, kingdom agent at that place. I will have the confidence and the authority to speak up because the kind of decisions are made will affect uh, how we run a screening service for thousands of people. They will impact on people, and I believe God has got something to say about that. And he will want me there to uh, bring his voice into that meeting. So I need to go, as this picture says, with this, your authorized authority from the Father. Uh, you can go with authority into that meeting. So let me ask you, what situations are you involved in at the moment where you need to understand that, yes, you have delegated authority or positional power or something, as we've discussed, and I'm not saying that's bad or doesn't uh, exist or it should be ignored, but first and foremost that you, your authority comes from being a son or daughter of God. Because I want to, to suggest to you that in the Great Commission, which you've yet to get to in Luke's Gospel, what we probably know better from Matthew's Gospel, where it says uh, Jesus gathers the disciples to himself and says, all authority uh, in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. Go and make disciples, etc. That Great Commission is made real and is lived out in our Christian faith as we daily remember 
that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus and therefore we go. It's not a one-off great commission. It's a daily commissioning. We go to our work. We go to our families. We go to our schools. We go to our universities. We go to our neighborhoods. We go to our city. We go to the nations. We go to our day-to-day front lines knowing our authority to be kingdom ambassadors comes from God being our father. So the question Where do you need to go with the authority that comes from our Heavenly Father? So to conclude, this passage I think is rich. And Luke, the author of Luke's Gospel, obviously, has been focusing our attention on where Jesus' authority comes from. But also the nature of authority for those who will follow him. Let me leave you then uh, with the questions I've posed as we've gone along, and I'll uh, hand things back over to Steve. So firstly, what earthly authority, acknowledging it's imperfect, acknowledging that it won't be wielded in the way that we might want it to be all the time, but what earthly authority is God asking us to, to submit to? Next question. What message of scripture do you need to be submitting to? recognizing and living out the fact that it is God's authoritative word. Thirdly, should you, do you need to give yourself to the study of God's word in some shape or form? Fourthly, what situations are you in currently where you need to go with a fresh sense of the authority that comes from knowing who our Heavenly Father is? Thanks, Dave. Let's just take um, a couple of minutes to be quiet and but I think particularly reflect on the first, of, first three of those questions. I'm going to ask Dave to come back uh, before we finish and pray a blessing on us around the last of those questions, that we would all go in God's authority. Uh, but the first three of those questions could all lead to a straightforward choice on our part. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we take a moment to be quiet and to reflect now, that you'd guide our thoughts and enable us to see what it is that you are calling us to choose, where it is that we need to repent and turn around and find fresh life in the new things that you're calling us to do.